from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. For those of you who are tuning us in for the first time, uh, let me let you know how this works. Every once in a while, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But find out, do me a favor. We'll start with some viewer mail this week. I don't have a regular viewer mail section because uh, most of the stuff that people send me is related to news stories that they've seen or things that they want to suggest that I include on the show. But this week, I finally got some questions about my opinions on things, which I really like because I like to talk, as you all know. So anyway, Robin T. wrote in and asked, uh, he was talking about the show where I was complaining about how Obama really isn't all that much better than Romney. Um, so anyway, he wrote in and said this, You said he wasn't the person you really wanted, but at least he's better than Romney. That's what I've been mulling over. So he asks, who in the last 100 years was a good president? If the person you wanted ended up in the White House, would they really be any better than Obama, the Bushes, Clinton, when decisions have to be made? And he raises a very good point. So thank you, Robin, for pointing out that, you know, there comes a certain point where decisions have to be made, and anybody who's going to make it to the point of the White House is just automatically going to have to make some um, some agreements, some compromises, you have to do certain things to reach that state of national recognition. And let's be honest, there's some people with a lot of power who, you know, get some veto power, shall we say, over who gets to be in the front of the Democratic Party, right? So they, you know, I'm not one of these people who thinks there's some smoky back room, but neither do I think it's just sort of a pure organic element of the individual people going out to caucuses. It, it's in between those two you know, extremes. So who in the last 100 years was a good president? Well, you know, look, presidents are like all humans. They do s different things, and there's some things that they do that are great and some things that they do that suck. Some presidents do more things that are great, and some presidents do more things that suck. Um, I, I would say that, you know, Jimmy Carter had the right idea, and he was all about, like, I want to make human rights the centerpiece of my uh, foreign policy. And at the same time, you know, he... I don't know enough about Jimmy Carter to really say why I think he was ineffective as a president, but all I know is, you know, when he was in the uh, the presidency, he increased sh arm shipments to Indonesia when they were carrying out the worst of the Timorese uh, aggression atrocities. So even in the case of Jimmy Carter, I'd say, you know, he really had a, a lot of really good ideals, and the same is probably true about Kennedy, and I, I regret not being informed enough about, you know, the things that happened during their presidencies, but I think that they had the right approach in terms of, you know, trying to inject a little more rationality into the office of the president. Whereas someone like Reagan and George W. Bush, those people basically came in and said, look, what I do, what I say, that's what we're going to do. And, and therefore, you know, it's this sort of imperialist conception of the executive branch of our government. Now, that said, um, I, I, again, I, I agree with Robin that, you know, decisions have to be made. Um, people have to... Uh, 
accommodate themselves within certain boundaries. But I also think that the real test of a person in a position of power is not just um, will they make it to the po uh, political office that they think will be the most influential and, and by the time they get there have no integrity left, or will they stand true to their integrity even if it means they don't advance in terms of their career? Because I think Russ Feingold is a perfect example of a person, a human being, who has stood up for what is right and refused to play the, the slimy game of politics in terms of taking money from super PACs and, 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 and kowtowing to the popularity of the time, and instead standing up and saying, no, look, he said the Patriot Act was wrong. And a lot of us look now and we say, yeah, that Patriot Act's kind of messed up. But he was the only senator to stand up and say, I think this act is wrong. It does not have enough safeguards for individual American liberties, and I'm going to vote against it. Now, it's sad that he's the only senator that voted against it because it shows that the rest of the Senate was caught up in the hysteria and the fear after 9-11. And I think Russ Feingold really distinguished himself as being somebody who was able to think beyond the fear. And uh, he's not the only one. You know, Tammy Baldwin's another person who I think has done an amazing job of taking stands that are not necessarily popular, but they are important. And, for instance, both she and Russ Feingold spoke out on East Timor's behalf very early on. Now, it's possible that, you know, a person like Russ Feingold could never make it to the presidency because they would never, you know, be, they'd never gain the favor of the party leaders. However, uh, I, I, that doesn't change the fact that we ought to keep pushing the people who are in the positions of power in various political parties. So I know that doesn't exactly answer your question, Robin, because I didn't say this person was a good president. I basically have a problem with everybody who is in a position of power and wields it in the way that presidents tend to wield it. I'm willing to admit that there's a possibility that, you know, I was, I was very excited when Obama first became president because he had been a community organizer on the south side of Chicago. And we have never had anybody in the presidency with that kind of background. Unfortunately, he seems to have made so many concessions to you know, pragmatism and, and working with the other side and, and under the belief that that's what's really going to change things. Um, and, and, and as a result, the passion and the fire that I saw and when he was a community organizer, uh, it seems to mostly be gone. And he's mostly interested in not making too many people angry and, 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 and playing the political game, which I don't think makes for good presidency. It makes for, he got reelected. He knows how to get elected. There's no doubt about it. Clinton knew how to get reelected. They're both very charismatic individuals who know how to play politics very well. But being the president is not just about playing politics. So I would say that um, what makes a good president is somebody who's willing to uh, stand up to Wall Street and somebody who is willing to make the priorities of poor people top priorities. Because, the you know, I don't remember exactly where I read this, but there's a great quote I read that said, a society uh, demonstrates its greatness by providing for the least of its citizens. And the United States does a horrible job of that. So those are some beginnings of answers to those questions. I like talking about this stuff. So if anybody out there listening has other questions or thoughts about, uh, you know, what's going on in the world or, or feedback or suggestions or challenges, please do write in esp at fbesp.org is my email address. And I'll be saying that again at the end of the show. So send me stuff. Also new this week is the action of the week. I know that it's worthwhile for me to talk because people need to know about can eat more. 
But I also want to provide you with something specific that you can do each week, or every time I do the show, I should say, uh, in order to give you some outlet for doing something. And this week we had a really good uh, update from this um, the Robinhood tax. If you don't know about the Robinhood tax, it is a proposed tax on Wall Street transactions, which would generate billions of dollars of revenue for the U- U- uh, U.S. federal government. And it, uh, they're, they're, so they're proposing that we use that Robinhood tax in order to fight AIDS. Well, what a great combination. Absolutely, let's do that. Let's tax Wall Street and use the money to fight AIDS. Why not? Uh, And this is what they say on their website. In May of 2011, the findings of a groundbreaking study were released showing that the United States and other wealthy countries increased their investment in getting people onto AIDS treatment. If we did that, we could end the AIDS pandemic in about 30 years. Now we just need to fund it. So let's do that, shall we? So uh, there's a petition at uh, petitions.whitehouse.gov, and you can sign on and say, hey, Obama, do this thing with taxing Wall Street. I mean, we should just tax Wall Street on general principle. But if we can use it in order to fight AIDS, And I, those of you who know me know that I include that thing about East Timor in that song because not only do I love Consolidated, the band that did that song, which is called Worthy Victim, but uh, you know I've been involved in the East Timor Solidarity Network for a long time, and uh, I, I, it's very important to me. It's how I met my wife and all this other stuff. Um, someday, if people are interested, I could give a whole syncast about the East Timor crisis because um, I give the presentation to my students once a semester, and I just did that this past Thursday, day before yesterday, actually, uh, because the 7th of December is the date, uh, the anniversary of the invasion of East Timor, and so I like to give a presentation on or be- around that day in order to let students know about um, what happened in East Timor and what their government was doing with their tax dollars in order to support the Indonesian military during that escapade. So, uh, if my voice sounds a little out of it, it's because I was at that. Um... This week in current events, uh, there was a factory fire in Bangladesh that killed 120 workers. Now, that's sad by itself, obviously. Um, the, the story reads, The Bangladeshi factory in question, Tazreen Factories, had no functioning extinguishers, locked the exits, and employed managers who told factory workers to go back to their stations when the fire alarm went off. Since 2006, over 200 people have died in Bangladeshi garment factories as a consequence of the substandard safety precautions prevalent in their factory. Some believe companies like Walmart, whose brands were found in the burnt factory, would move if production at the factory were more expensive, that is, if things like basic safety precautions were implemented. And this is the the final catastrophe of this whole race to the bottom notion, which says that, oh, these people are in such desperate states that they'll accept any kind of conditions, uh, and that's good for them. And that, that opinion was voiced by a Fox commentator who said that the workers were lucky and Walmart is not to blame. The workers were lucky to have a job in the first place. So whenever this sort of thing happens, there's usually a round of calls for more stringent safety requirements for the companies that operate in places like Bangladesh. And free market fundamentalists in the United States and elsewhere say, no, 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 if you put those requirements on these factories, like you have to to have working exits and you have to have fire extinguishers, uh, then, you know, in order to, to monitor those things, that causes the, the labor cost to go up and the companies will go overseas. Well, by that logic, you know, if corporations have our entire planet hostage 
and we should never allow anybody to institute any kind of safety requirement ever, and we might as well, you know, do away with the abolition of child labor, because, hey, they'd be happy to get a job. Well, Ha Jun Cheng has written a lot of good things about this, so you should read uh, 23 Things They Don't Teach You About Capitalism if you want a more nuanced discussion. Bad Samaritans is also a very good book by him. Moving on, there was a school shooting at a university in Wyoming, and the headline was, Wyoming professor fatally wounded by arrow helped students to escape. Now, it turns out that the uh, guy who came in shooting uh, with a bow and arrow, a compound bow, uh, it was his son. So it was clear that this uh, this guy came into the university uh, classrooms looking to kill his father, uh, which doesn't make it any more horrifying or sa- any less horrifying or sad. Um, but but it it also changes the dynamic. It wasn't as though uh, there was a random shooter in the way that University of Virginia, for instance, or Virginia Tech rather, happened a few years ago. Anyway, um, more grisly details of the horrific murder-suicide in Wyoming came to light Saturday, a day after the younger man killed his father's living girlfriend and then barged into his father's computer science class and shot him in the head with a high-powered bow and arrow. As James Crum, age 56, then fought with son Christopher Crum during Friday's attack, the handful of students in the Casper College classroom escaped. And so this is obviously a very sad story, very horrifying. Um, I I think that the... uh, and it's not clear exactly how much of this was motivated by a desire to save the students, since it wasn't ever clear that they were in danger to begin with. But it reminds me of a guy named Livio Labrescu, who is an amazing individual, and you should totally learn about him, not just from me. He was a uh, um, an engineering professor at Virginia Tech, and when um, the guy came in shooting during that massacre, his name was Cho, uh, he came shooting in the classroom. Livio Labrescu... Um, blocked the door with his body and got shot to death in order to let the students escape out the window. And I keep a picture of Mr. Labrescu up in my classroom. Uh, He was a Holocaust survivor, by the way. So how uh, ironic and sad. Uh, I mean, doubly, you know, it's especially shocking that he would meet his end in this way. But I keep his picture up in my classroom because I want to think that if ever a situation, you know, heaven forfend were to happen of that variety in my classroom, that I would have the courage and the Um, willingness to do the same thing to help my students escape. Anyway, um, there was another murder-suicide that took place with a Kansas City Chiefs linebacker named Jovan Belcher. Now, I don't study sports. I don't follow sports or basketball. I'm not a Green Bay Packers fan. I don't really care about the Wisconsin Badgers, and I know that's blasphemy to some people. But it's true. I just don't. That's the way I am. I've never been interested in sports, except when I was a kid. I was sort of interested in baseball and a little bit about football. But, you know, it's been decades since I've paid attention to anything involving sports. However, I do uh, pay attention to things involving sports. you know, murder, especially murder-suicide, because it's almost always the guy who kills the his girlfriend or his wife or his ex-wife or his ex-girlfriend and then himself. Um, so, you know, here was the the article said, Kansas City Chiefs linebacker Jovan Belcher fatally shot his girlfriend Saturday, then drove to Arrowhead Stadium and committed suicide in front of his coach and general manager. And this is the especially ironic thing with this story. Among the likes on Belcher's Facebook page was one for Male Athletes Against Violence, a project founded at his alma mater, the University of Maine, aimed at raising awareness about the problem of male violence against women. So it just sort of adds this crazy, insane twist to this whole story. And, uh, it, it, you know, every, it seems like every week or so in the United States, we have a guy 
it's I, I I can't remember any time ever seeing a woman doing this, but maybe they do, and it just doesn't make it into the papers. But I I don't see it a lot. Uh, it's usually a guy who kills his wife or his girlfriend, ex-wife, ex-girlfriend, and then sometimes kills himself, sometimes just tries to get away. And it it really drives me crazy because you know people have this attitude that oh guys are just sort of genetically hardwired to be more aggressive and boys will be boys and this and that and i'm sorry but that's not okay that's that's a cop out that's a way of saying that this guy couldn't help himself and that's not that's not acceptable i think you know men in general i think have a deep psychosexual crisis going on and we don't know how to deal with the fact that we are not the alpha males that we, we think we ought to be and especially, I'm sure, professional sports make it even more difficult because you're being measured as this, you know, athlete, this person who's carrying the weight of the team's expectations, and, and there's so much pressure. Uh, I think The Last Boy Scout, for all of its problems as a movie, uh, that first scene, I think, really speaks to the pressure a lot of, uh, you know, athletes are in and under. And I, I, I work with students who are athletes, and, and I've had them say to me, like, I can't stand this sport anymore. I'm only doing it because my parents expect me to. Now, at the same time, of course, obviously, there's a whole lot of kids who do sports because they love it. And, you know, anyway, I got off on kind of a tangent there. The point is that I get really sick of seeing these stories about guys killing their girlfriends or wives and then themselves. And, uh, hey, guys, how about this? Kill yourself first, and then you can kill your girlfriend afterwards. Is that a deal? Or don't kill anybody at all. There's the best way out of this whole predicament. Moving into the PB&J file, that's police brutality and justice, for those of you just joining us, uh, Davey D. had two very interesting articles uh, on his blog recently. One of them, the, head, the headline was, uh, Police say handcuffed high school student shoot self. That's right, folks. He was handcuffed in the police car and he shot himself. Uh, this is the, David E. writes, this is the second time this year a man who was handcuffed and put in a squad car has shot himself. Earlier this year, we had a young man by the name of Chavis Carter, 21, who was accused of committing suicide even though he was handcuffed from behind and had been searched twice for weapons. He had been picked up by authorities during a traffic stop in Jonesboro, Arkansas. In this new incident, which took place in Houston, Texas, police said a 17-year-old high school student had a gun that police did not detect. So... Um, I don't know what to say about that. It seems mighty suspicious. Davey D. also had an article called 10 Outrageous Tactics the Police Are Using, and it's a very thorough and uh, extensively documented article. Uh, it was written by a guy named John Kneffel, and uh, it has a lot of really good links to things, so if you have a few minutes, go over and check out the uh, 10 Outrageous Tactics the Police Are Using. A lot of them you're probably familiar with, the stop-and-frisk thing and the uh, the whole infiltration you know pattern that we saw. Uh, they featured it in uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 with the... A uh, police officer who infiltrated the peace group in, I think, Fresno, maybe. Any case, those of us who have been involved in uh, movements for social change uh, are well familiar with these kinds of police tactics. And if you don't know about COINTELPRO, you know, hey, you should totally learn about that because that was a decades-long government program that is probably still going on that uses exactly these same tactics and has resulted in the deaths of people like Fred Hampton and you know Mark Clark in Chicago and others um, in order to try to disrupt and destroy organizations which have a constitutional right to exist and, uh, you know, oftentimes they're, they're very peaceful organizations. Anyway, um, there was an article about a Florida GOP leader who says that voter suppression was the motive behind voter fraud law. 
And this came to us from the Palm Beach Coast, excuse me, the Palm Beach Post.com. Uh, former Republican Party of Florida Chairman Jim Greer says he attended various meetings beginning in 2009 at which party staffers and consultants pushed for reductions in early voting days and hours. The, quote, the Republican Party, the strategists, the consultants, they firmly believe that early voting is bad for Republican Party candidates, Greer told the Post. Quote, it's done for one reason and one reason only. We've got to cut down on early voting because early voting is not good for us, Greer said he was told by those staffers and consultants. Quote, they never came in and see me and tell me we had a voter fraud issue, Greer said. It's all a marketing ploy. So... There you go. We have people starting to admit that the whole thing about voter fraud was not based on actual fraud. It was just a manipulation technique to try to get more votes to the GOP or at least less votes to the Democrats. Did it work? Hmm. Let me think. Oh, wait. I have the actual buzzer. I can just play there it is. I don't want to overdo it with those the way I do on the Veteran Gamers podcast. And there was finally in the current events file, there was an article from the Boston Globe called The Case for Governing by Lottery. Um, for a small but fervent group of political philosophers, the idea of voting by lottery is not a joke. It's a serious idea. They argue that we would be better off if we scrapped congressional elections altogether and instead filled the House of Representatives with 435 Americans selected lottery style from the population. Quote, My main worry is that electoral accountability has broken down, says Alex Guerrero. Uh, a philosophy professor at the University of Pennsylvania. In a lotocratic system where the representatives haven't necessarily sought out power, you might get policies that are more responsive to the people and less distorted by powerful special interests. And that's true, but I think you might also get lunatics and nut jobs and people who would find ways to sell their influence. And I prefer voting for my legislators. But it's an interesting sign of desperation. I think, if nothing else, this shows that things in Washington are so dysfunctional and that money and the, the, the re-election cycle, especially in the wake of Citizens United, have so corrupted the entire American political process that w people are desperate to try something new. And I think we should just fix the system we've got. It was funny. I was uh, actually uh, we were doing a fire drill recently at school, and uh, I was getting the people, you know, off the street, you know, to kill on kids. You got to back up onto the sidewalk. And one of the teachers was talking about money. I don't remember why. He's talking, you know, you got my pay for the month or something, holding up a dollar bill. And I said, hey, man, cash rules everything around me. And these this group of girls I did not know standing nearby, they start going, cream, get the money. And then we both said together, dollar, dollar bill, y'all. And it was such a great moment because I live for those things in my teaching. One of the greatest things ever was uh, is when when I make a pop culture reference, TV show, Arrested Development, or some movie. Uh, here's a, here's an example. Whenever a student is purposely trying to get my goat, he's really trying to rile me up. I've trained myself to just stop, look at him, and go, "Are you trying to get a rise out of me, Agent Kuyan?" Now, most people who hear that, they immediately start going, "What? Who? Why'd you call me that? Yeah, I'm trying to get a rise out of you." <laughs> And nobody ever gets the reference. And and one time I was I did that, and this student looked at he went, oh, usual suspects. And I was like, yes, thank you. It's been like five years, and nobody ever gets that. It's so awesome when students get that sort of thing. Now I don't know if it's necessarily a good idea for 16-year-olds to be watching the Usual Suspects, but you know, they watch Saw and Paranormal Activity and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So why not Usual Suspects, right?
At least I can watch a good violent movie. Anyway, uh, economics. Moving on. Did Sandy save Occupy? Well, that's the question asked by Salon.com because the Occupy Wall Street movement, a lot of people said they were kind of fizzling out. Uh, and then Hurricane Sandy came along, or Superstorm Sandy, whatever you want to call it. And the need for people to help out was so great that a lot of the um, Occupy Wall Street people began Occupy Sandy. And they, they were taking action in order to help people recover from Hurricane Sandy as a way to let people know about the positive power of, you know, sort of, uh, grassroots action and 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 so forth. Uh, so here's uh, an excerpt from the article. Occupy Sandy has cooked and distributed between 10 and 15,000 meals each day, enlisted more than 7,000 volunteers, created three major distribution hubs from which it dispatches both workers and supplies, and established dozens of recovery sites in New York and New Jersey. Perhaps most stunning, the group has raised more than $600,000 in cash for its efforts and received more than $700,000 in supplies donated through repurposed online wedding registries. In a strange way, the storm has helped the Occupy movement too, providing the uh, insistently non-hierarchical, tech-savvy network of protesters with an opportunity to demonstrate the values it sometimes struggled to articulate during its Zuccotti Park chapter. When it was centered around inequality in broad theoretical terms, Occupy Wall Street failed to connect with many of the 99% it aimed to represent, particularly the kinds of folks who live in Gerritsen Beach, Staten Island, and the other working-class areas that are now ground zero for Occupy Sandy. Post-storm, the Occupy movement finds itself in a position many in these neighborhoods might find more palatable. Quote, they're channeling all their energy into something tangible, says Susan Healy, a 54-year-old social worker from Bay Ridge who volunteers with the group but didn't consider herself an occupier back in the Zuccotti days. Necessities and the ability to quickly dispatch volunteers to where they're needed most are apparently worth a thousand banners. Which is great. Now... Here's the thing, for me, from my perspective, and I'd like to know more about this. So if anybody out there has any information about how Occupy Sandy is doing this, I'd love to know it. Obviously, helping people recover from a hurricane is very important. Um, but, of course, the Occupy movement has, hopefully, a much larger actual agenda in terms of transforming the broken system of crony corporate capitalism uh, into something that will actually meet the needs of, of working people um, in, on a regular basis, and not just uh, in fits and starts after a disaster strikes. Uh, now that said, I don't think that it's a good idea to use this crisis as a way to propagandize for a political movement. And this is sort of my discomfort from this whole thing. Now, that's not to say that this isn't a great thing. Obviously, Occupy Sandy sounds wonderful, because, yeah, people have energy, they want to see change happen, let's be the change we want to see. But... Helping people recover from storms, as I say, is only part of it. The, the other part, the perhaps even more urgent part, is to transform the infrastructure and the systems of governance so that we don't find ourselves in these crises in the first place. And so, for instance, in Haiti, when there's a, a hurricane, a lot of people die because the houses and the buildings are, are made very cheaply. And we need to transform the economy of Haiti. The people of Haiti need to transform their economy. Um... And we ought to help and we ought to give up the wealth from the so-called first world so that they can do so. And uh, rather than just saying, okay, let's give a few dollars whenever there's a hurricane that hits Haiti. You know what I mean? It has to be a larger system, systematic change that takes place. Anyway, um, moving on. 
the, the fiscal cliff. Okay, real quick. I don't want to talk about this much because it's been all over the news in the U.S. And frankly, I'm tired of hearing about it. Uh, there are a lot of people who say it's the so-called fiscal cliff, and it's it is. It's all manufactured. Uh, it's it's not something that uh, you know. It, there's there's basically what's going to happen is, ugh, and pity the poor people who don't know what I'm talking about in the U.K. Just don't even think about it. It's not really that important. It'll pass, and there will be a compromise that gets resolved the way that every compromise ever happens in Washington. The Republicans stand firm, and the Democrats go, we want X, and then Republicans go, no. And then we go, oh, we'll take X minus 1, and they go, no. X minus 5, no. X minus 20, no. X minus 30, okay, fine. And then that's the compromise that we get. That's how negotiations happen in Washington, D.C. today. Anyway, uh, Timothy Geithner, who is a guy I cannot stand, he is the Treasury Secretary um, for the Obama administration, he uh he's like some little weasel and he uh said that he's finally showing some backbone in terms of what we ought to do to fix the economy and it doesn't have anything to do with standing up to wall street really he just says no deal without higher tax rates on the rich so at least he's saying that quote there's not going to be an agreement without rates going up geithner said on cnn's state of the union one of a series of talk show appearances he made on sunday Geithner noted that Obama is offering the debt reduction deal he campaigned on, including an elimination of the George W. Bush tax cuts for Americans who make more than $250,000 a year. Now, as someone who makes less than $250,000 a year, I'm stunned that this is even an issue. Because I'll bet the vast majority of Americans don't make $250,000 a year. So let me ask you this. If all of this hubbub about, oh, democracy is just two wolves and a chicken deciding what to eat for dinner... If that were really true, then why haven't why hasn't haven't the Bush tax cuts been massively overturned? How did they even go through in the first place if the will of the majority is supposedly how democracy gets run? Well, people realize that it wouldn't be in their own best interest. Yeah, it would. It totally would. And it especially would right now. Republicans say they will agree to more government revenues through elimination of tax loopholes, but not through an increase in tax rates they say will slow the economy. So, I don't know. I don't envy Obama being in this position. Part of me says that if I were him, I'd be like, you know what? Let's go over the fiscal cliff. Come on, Grover Norquist. You want to see what actually happens when your no-tax-raising-ever thing goes down? And, you know, of course, it would just become a battle of who can spin it better. And Republicans probably could spin it better. But Democrats would have the truth on their side. And the truth is that without raising taxes, we are not going to solve this deficit mess. And, you know, you talk about cutting entitlements. You're talking about... Reforming entitlements is the way they say it. You talk about cutting Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, medicine for poor and sick people and old people. That's what you're talking about cutting. And Social Security, with the most effective government program in the history of ever, lifting poor elderly people out of poverty like nobody's business. Social Security has been incredibly effective. Should we means test it? Fine. Should we raise the cap on, on how much, you know, how we pay for it? Yeah. There are some simple ways to help Social Security get more solvent. But people are talking about, let's extend the uh, time you get to retire. Let's push back the retirement age. Yeah, how about this? Anytime you ever hear anybody saying that, you ask them, when do you plan to retire? I don't think you're planning to work until you're 68 or 70. People are living longer. Yeah, but it's the, uh, you know, it's the very, it's not as though we're delaying the onset of puberty here, people. It's the, you know, we're making it possible to live longer in that, you know, elderly state that you reach at the age 65. You've worked all your life. You deserve some time to rest. And I know that makes me a radical, lunatic, left-wing, 
hippie, commie, you know, nut job. But that's how I feel. After working your whole life, you deserve some time to rest. Business Week had a very interesting article uh, called The Racial Legacy of the Subprime Crisis, Damaged Credit Scores. The Washington Post has a recent has a great piece out today looking at how the subprime the subprime credit bust is creating lasting damage to the credit scores of black Americans, something that may hamper their ability to rebound from the crisis that erased a, quote, generation of economic progress. While the story focused on black Americans, the same can probably be said even more forcefully about Hispanic borrowers, whom the Pew Research Center found suffered the greatest financial setback in the crisis. The median, network, met, the median net worth of Hispanic households fell by 66% from 2005 to 2009, compared with a 53% decline for black Americans. Both are far worse than the 16% decline for white Americans. For Hispanics, many living in California, Arizona, and other epicenters of the bust, home equity was cut in half. The declines aren't a coincidence. Lenders often sold minorities mortgages that had riskier features. Hispanics were 1.7 times more likely than non-Hispanic whites to have a hybrid or option adjustable rate mortgage, while black borrowers were 2.8 times more likely to have higher rate loans than non-Hispanic whites, according to a 2000 2011 report by the Center for Responsible Lending. And I've said it before, I'll say it a million times, uh, Predator Nation by Charles Ferguson, the most important book you will ever read about the financial crisis of 2008 and who did what and all the scummy stuff that went on in Wall Street. And we got to move on because I'm going to start screaming and cursing. Fracking is coming to the UK. Strap in, kids. Or wait, should I say, strap in, lads. While efforts to dr- oh here where is this from this is from Business Week as well while efforts to drill gas from shale deposits have stalled on the continent of Europe the British government could soon give the go ahead to drilling and po- uh, provide tax breaks to encourage it yeah Chancellor of the Exchequer George Osborne scheduled to unveil a new government energy plan on December fifth ooh that's happened by now has said he wants to ensure that Britain is not left behind the U.S. where a shale gas boom has dramatically lowered prices and ended the country's dependence on imported gas. Um, uh, Quadria estimates the area it is exploring in Lancashire in northwestern England. Hey, Stu, isn't that where you live? Could contain 200 trillion cubic feet of gas, more gas than all of Iraq. We can supply a quarter. Of the, we can supply a quarter of the UK's gas demand. CEO Egan told the Telegraph, the company whose chairman is former BP CEO John Brown. That's really his name, John Brown. Uh, voluntarily, for those who don't know, John Brown was a great American hero. He stormed a uh, armory in order to try to free slaves. Voluntarily suspended exploration in Lancashire after earthquakes there in April and May 2011 were linked to its drilling. The company and government officials have subsequently said they believe fracking can be carried out safely. And I say, if you can't trust a former BP CEO, come on, who can you trust? So, people in the UK, now's a really good time to watch the film Gasland in which a young American guy goes looking around to see what fracking is doing to the United States. Let me tell you, there's some exciting things in that movie. Fracking is fun to watch take place. And when it sets your water on fire, that's fun too to watch. It's not fun to live in a house with water you can set on fire. And you can't prove this from the fracking. But, um, yeah. 60 Minutes had a very interesting piece about a hospital chain called HMA, and uh, they were defrauding Medicare and Medicaid for the sake of profits. Let me see if I can cue up a little segment from that real quick. For more than a year, we have been looking into the admission and billing practices of health management associates. 
It's the fourth largest for-profit hospital chain in the country with revenues of $5.8 billion last year and nearly half of that coming from Medicare and Medicaid programs. We talked to more than 100 current and former employees and we heard a similar story over and over that HMA relentlessly pressured its doctors to admit more and more patients regardless of medical need in order to increase revenues. So I encourage you to watch the rest of the thing because it's very interesting. Um, yeah. There was a, uh, a ruling from the National Labor Relations Board about Palermo's Pizza. And uh, if you don't know about that, they are a pizza chain that is headquartered in Wisconsin. And uh, they've been treating their workers unfairly and not allowing them to organize a union. So there's a boycott going on. And recently, the NLRB issued a ruling against Palermo's Pizza, and the uh, the striking workers said, quote, We are glad that today the Milwaukee Regional Office of the NLRB announced a decision finding that Palermo Vila Incorporated violated federal labor law. Palermo's treatment of its workers and its response to our exercising our right to organize for a voice in our jobs has been outrageous. Under today's decision, a significant number of workers will get their jobs back and be awarded back pay because of Palermo's misconduct. We are disappointed, however, that the regional office of the NLRB did not issue a complaint on some important aspects of our charge. We will appeal this failing to the NLRB in Washington to correct these errors. So good luck, Palermo's workers. You got my back. I got your back. And you got my support and all that sort of stuff like that. The New York Times had a very interesting education piece today, uh, not today, uh, recently. It was an opinion piece called, uh, When Grading is Degrading, uh, Grading Schools Isn't the Answer, It is the Problem. And it was an opinion piece from, queuing up here, here Michael Brick. Uh, who is, let's see, uh, Michael Brake, a former New York Times reporter, is the author of Saving the School, the true story of a principal, a teacher, a coach, and a bunch of kids in a year in the crosshairs of education reform, which I would like to read. Here's what he writes. For the past three decades, one administration after another has sought to fix America's troubled schools by making them compete with one another. Mr. Obama has put up billions of dollars for his Race to the Top program, a federal sweepstakes where state educational systems are judged head-to-head largely on the basis of test scores. Even here in Texas, nobody's model for educational excellence, the state has long used complex algorithms to assign grades of exemplary, recognized, acceptable, or unacceptable to its schools. Out of the article for a second, I would point out that the Texas actually was the area, you know, Bush, George W. Bush was ostensibly the leader of something called the Texas Miracle, where all these test scores went up, for especially for poor and black kids. And that was supposed to be the model that No Child Left Behind was built on. And we were going to see schools across the country changing drastically and, and everything was going to get fixed. And kids in poorest areas and black kids and Latino kids were going to have high quality education thanks to the same kinds of changes that they made in Texas. Well, now the New York Times is making fun of Texas for being nobody's model for educational excellence. What happened? Maybe the uh, amazing results weren't as amazing as they made it look like at first. Anyway, back to the article. So far, such competition has achieved little more than resegregation, long charter school waiting lists, and the same anemic international rankings in science, math, and literacy we've had for years. Later in the article, raw numbers don't begin to capture what happens in the classroom. And when we reward and punish teachers based on such artificial measures, there is too often an unintended consequence for our kids. Now, 
I should say that I went to a education reform conference yesterday here in Madison, Wisconsin. And it was organized by the Urban League of Greater Madison. And it was all about how the schools aren't doing a good enough job of educating young, poor students, especially poor black students, especially Latino students. And the need for us to innovate in the way that we design schools and the way we structure schools in order to bring about better outcomes. And two of the speakers there were very passionate, very heartfelt, very um, fired up people who who I believe were really dedicated to making schools better, especially for black kids. However, their recommendations had to do with things like um, ending tenure and making it easier for teachers to get fired and having accountability for teachers. And I simply don't share the view that Teachers are the problem. There are bad teachers, of course, just as there are bad police officers, and there are bad firefighters, and there are bad you know, television pundits, and there are bad garbage men and garbage women, and there are bad uh, nurses. But we don't have this same call to get rid of the bad police officers and the bad TV pundits and the bad uh, you know, street repair personnel. And uh, I, 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 I recognize that it may be the case that unions are trying to protect a status quo that doesn't work for some kids, but I don't believe that abolishing the unions and completely overhauling that status quo in favor of charter schools is the way to reform education. And they had some presentations from some schools that are doing some amazing things. You know, they're right in the heart of, for instance, uh, you know, the, the, the poorest areas of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Which, you know, there's some, there's some suffering people in those areas, no doubt about it. There's a lot of poverty, a lot of crime, and education is a really important tool for those students. And it's, it's pathetic that the students who need that kind of education to try to rise above that despair and violence have such trouble getting it. And some of these charter schools look like they're doing amazing things. And I think that's wonderful, you know. If they're bringing education to students who aren't going to get it otherwise, okay, that's great. But I, I feel like the, the, the charter movement is about changing the locus of control. And it's giving administrators a lot more power. It's taking power away from school boards and democratically elected organizations. And that makes me very nervous. So I, I thought there were some very interesting points made at this education conference. And I, I've always said that I'm not willing to turn my back on the idea of charters themselves. But... Um, neither do I think that they're, you know, look, here's the thing. Anytime somebody starts telling me about a miracle in education, I start to, I have a lot of questions I want answered. And we only had time for like three questions yesterday. So I didn't get to ask what the average class size was. I didn't get to ask what, how many hours a week the average teacher works. And I didn't get to, you know, I'm not going to find out from that conference, you know, any stories about, you know, the, the administration taking, um, autocratic control of certain programs or whatever it is. So I have a lot of questions about that. That said, you know, anybody who's trying to make education better, I think that's a great thing to try to do. I just think that it's easy to say, well, we ought to do this new thing because this is going to save the day. And uh, in the meantime, we're losing democratic control over schools. Meanwhile, in France, there is an article that said, pencils down, French plan would end homework. In the name of equality, the French government has proposed doing away with homework in elementary and junior high school. And this is from NPR. Uh, French President Francois Hollande argues that homework penalizes children with difficult home situations. But even the people whom the proposal is supposed to help disagree. 
Quote, poor people want homework because they know that school is very important, and the only chance, the only possibility they have to give their children a better life is if their children succeed at school, says Emmanuel Davidenkoff, editor-in-chief of L'Etudiant, a magazine and website devoted to French school and education. Davidenkoff says the socialist government doesn't seem to understand the concerns of working in middle class and in the name of equality got it all wrong. Quote, mostly wealthy people don't want homework because when the kids are at home, they make sports or they make sports or they make sports. If I'm going to make fun of the British accent, I should make fun of it. Mostly wealthy people don't want homework because when the kids are at home, they make a sports or they dance or music. They go to museums, to the theater. So they have this access to culture, which is very important, he says. In poor families, they do not have that. So the only link they have with culture in school is homework. Les devoirs, ça c'est très important. Um, I don't know how to think about this because I think that students are really burdened and that students ought to have some leisure time because after all, Article 24 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says all people have the right to leisure. That said, you know, we only have so much time to talk about stuff in the classroom. You got to read Huck Finn. You got to read a little bit each night. That's just the way it is. So the idea of doing away with homework, and it depends on how you define homework, and obviously it's silly to say the poor want X because I'm sure some of the poor want X and some of the poor want Y and some of the poor probably want, you know, homework because they want the ability to help their students and it's a way to engage with learning and further the goals of the classroom. And I'm sure some poor people in France, just like some poor people in the United States, probably also are like, you know, the students and the parents, I don't want to have to deal with that. It should just happen at school. So, I don't know. I... I, I you know what? The question about whether to end homework or not, and whether to flip the classroom, I feel like all this stuff sort of comes and goes, and a lot of times there's some old wine put in new bottles. And at the end of the day, what I can do is I can close my classroom door and I can teach my students the best way I know how. And I hear from a lot of them that it's a great class, and I feel that they're learning a lot, and I give feedback on their writing and try to help them get better and ask difficult questions about the nature of the universe and their relationship to it. And... uh you know, all this question, homework, you know, reforming all schools. What, you know, I'll watch it from the sidelines. I will say what I think, but ultimately I, there's no silver bullets. Homework With homework, without homework, you know what? Does the kid like to read? Is the kid working on getting better at writing? Are they? Do they know their multiplication tables? I am amazed by how many of the students I see at Sunfire High School who don't know their multiplication tables. And that's okay. Like it's, And it's not that... I'm sure math teachers are frustrated by that too. I don't wish to make it sound as though the math teachers think it's okay. But the point is, of course, look, they're not going to be tested on multiplication in high school. They're going to be tested on this, you know, algebra and the geometry and stuff. And it, 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 you don't have to know your multiplication tables for that. You just punch it in the calculator. Now... That and that it's okay. Look, so you know, my dad probably would have been like, eh, slide people don't know how to use slide rules now. Okay, granted, there's always been this transition toward technology, I get that, but I'm sorry, I feel like times tables are something that you know everybody uses their times tables on a day to day basis. We're all becoming even more enslaved to the technology. Ah! Moving on. In the money-trumping-truth department, we have an article that really depressed the heck out of me. It says, New York City parents hire tutors to cheat for their kids. Here's how the article starts. Allen wrote a heartwarming, if not tearjerker, of an essay about living with Crohn's disease for a college application essay. He was proud of his opus, detailing the struggles of the often crippling autoimmune disease that makes leading a normal teenage life all but impossible. 
Only problem is, Allen is not a high school senior, but a former tutor-turned-ghostwriter in his early 30s who was paid $150 to write about this real-life situation by the applicant's father. The New York dad, like a lot of Allen's clients, found him through his ad on Craigslist, the increasingly murky marketplace for legit and not-so-legit tutors, homework helpers, and ghostwriters in dubious guises. Quote, A big segment of my clients are Ivy League-bound kids who are chess champions and want to go to Princeton and Harvard, says Allen, an Ivy Leaguer who asked not to be identified by his real name. Allen, who charges anywhere from $100 to $600 for assignments and holds a graduate degree in biology from a top NYC university, abandoned years of traditional tutoring in favor of academic dishonesty and moral collusion because simply, quote, this is a lot more lucrative. Dude, Duchess, you should totally do this. You have a graduate degree in biology from a top Wisconsin university. You could totally wrench yourself out as like a cheater who could write people's essays and do their homework for them. You could make ten times what you're making now. We could live the easy life. I could be maxing and relaxing like that guy in the BMO commercial. And it's like, I'm thinking bigger. And he's, like, and he's in the, getting the lobster put in front of him. And he's on the plane. I want to be that guy. Ooh, a paper airplane just hit me in the head. One thing at a time. Yeah, that's right. Ah, uh, life. Life is a lot like those commercials. Or it could be if the Duchess would be willing to sell her soul. robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. The tiny transforming robot that can turn into almost anything. This is from Bi uh, The Week. What is theweek.com? It's a website about weeks. It's about the It's not a room. It's the room. It's not a week. It's the week. All right. I don't know what the week is. I don't know. It's the week. Right, whatever. Uh, the tiny transforming robot that can turn into almost anything. Um, how do you build a real-life transformer capable of molding itself into nearly any shape, no matter how complex? According to MIT's Neil Gershenfeld and his colleagues, you start small. Meet the Millimotine. Although it doesn't look like much at first, the caterpillar-sized robot is capable of bending, twisting, elongating, and combining with an endless number of other links into nearly any shape you can imagine, from coffee cups to airplane turbines... Its innovation is based on a process that's several billion years old, entrenched in every cell in our bodies, says Mark Wilson at Fast Company Design. Ribosomes. On a molecular level, proteins give living things their shape, and ribosomes are the proteins that make proteins. Wilson explains how ribosomes work. Now, Duchess, I'm counting on you to tell me how much of this is real and how much of this is bollocks, but I don't know. I mean, it's in theweek.com. He's at MIT. I don't think they let dinguses at MIT make robots if they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, ribosomes. They use a process called elongation to build proteins from one-dimensional chains. These chains, via the intricate miracle of protein folding, become the molecular machines in our bodies that sense light in our eyes or move muscles in our arms. It's this one-to-one -one parallel that allows Gershenfeld to confidently call the millimotine a mechanical protein or programmable matter. I like the term physical software, too. That's interesting, and uh, it goes along with what um, Manuel Delanda said about synthetic life forms, which uh, he's had some interesting things to say. Uh, I don't think he ever wrote a book about synthetic life itself. I mean, obviously, War in the Age of Intelligent Machines touches on it, but I remember there was a part in the, um, the MIT Press Zone Books had a compilation that I think John Broad stole from me, 
And he had a piece in their interview, I think, maybe, about synthetic life, and it was very interesting. And speaking of uh, transforming robots, Jason uh, sent me a video of a robot from Japan called Brave Robotics. I guess the robot's probably not called that, but that's what the company's called. And it's freaking amazing. It's this... It's a transformer robot thing, and it's it's small, you know, it's a model shape, but they could do it. They just need bigger m engines and things and motors and whatnot, and go figure. They'll be here soon, the transformers, and then there'll be some hot guy who's going out with a hot chick, and then she goes, "My dad, I, man, I used to steal cars," and the guy will go, "What? You never told me you used to steal cars?" Or she "My dad made me," <laughs> and we'll all go, "Who cares? This is stupid." I'd like to thank Neil S. in advance for this week's uh, hip-hop track because uh, he sent me a video call by a group called Dan Lassac vs. Scroobius Pip, and it's awesome, and I really like it, and I've never heard anything by either of those people, Dan Lassac or Scroobius Pip, but I'm going to be looking into them because I was very impressed by this song. So, uh, yeah, let me play you a little sample. Now, part of the reason I really like that song is because it has this aesthetic that's really noisy and chaotic, and I get really into that, and I think there ought to be more hip-hop like that. Unfortunately, most hip-hop these days is very sort of R&B style and very laid back, and I mean, even the stuff that's more aggressive is, um, I don't know, Public Enemy is still doing amazing work. Brother Ali has some good stuff. Uh, there are artists who give me that kind of aesthetic that I'm looking for, but they seem to be pretty sparse these days. The general aesthetic of music overall, I mean, I suppose you could say that dubstep has kind of hurt the aggressive, abrasive aesthetic in music because there's been a big backlash against dubstep because it seemed like it was this strange party fad that a lot of people got into out of nowhere, and they wanted one particular style over and over again. And, of course, drum and bass featured a similar type of thing for a while, but there was also Omnitrio, and there was amazing... You know, I mean, look, Skrillex is a good artist. I don't care what people say. He's pretentious. Maybe he had shows where he was, you know, stealing people from other stuff from other people. I don't... To be honest, dude, look, I'm a Negative Land fan, okay? You're not going to get me angry because someone took someone else's art. But I think that, you know, we have to recognize Skrillex is... Skrillex is just a band. Um... So whatever, I I'd like to see more stuff like Dan Lassac and Scroobius Pip. I'm going to be looking into both of them. Why haven't you bought their album already? I sent that to you two weeks ago. I know you didn't, Neil, but just get off my back, would you? 
All right, we gotta do the quote of the week because we're running up on an hour here. So let's get this over Friends, with. Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the end of this near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You gotta listen to hear. I sure hope I didn't do this quote of the week already because it seems familiar. But maybe that's just because I put it in the notes a long time ago. Edith Sitwell was a British poet and critic born in 1887 and died in 1964. Like her brothers Osbert and Sacheverell, uh, Edith reacted badly to her eccentric, unloving parents and lived for much of her life with her governess. Never married, she became passionately attached to the gay Russian painter Pavel Chelichu and was close with members of London's poetic circle. She said, quote, Cameras have arisen in our midst like a new race of mechanical ghouls. Awesome. All right, that's it, people. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, didacticsynapsefbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff. Remember, that's org, not com. Someone tried to send me something and they got lost because they sent it to fbesp.com. It's not. It's fbesp.org. Floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski. You type that into Google, you'll find it. Just like that. Um, shout-outs this week to Neil S. for Scrooby's Pip and, and, and uh, the other thing. And uh, Stu Leck for the cat chemistry jokes. Those were awesome. Thank you, Stu Leck. And uh, everybody who's been emailing me and Robin Tate for the questions. And other people should send me uh, political, philosophical questions, things you, you want me to sound off on. I love sounding off and direct response to things, not just news articles. Uh, so, yeah, send me things. ESP at FBESP.org. Come on, get in touch. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things. I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy Listen, man. I don't have time Deal with to it. Play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thank you for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. ESP at fbesp.org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. I'm doing a good job of keeping it under an hour lately. Booyah! Unless I now talk for another minute and a half, at which point we'll go over an hour. Nah.